Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Hey there. God loves the LGBT community, but that's a different question from whether or not the lifestyles associated with that community are biblically permissible. Here's a woman who claims that she's got a queer reading of the Bible. The fact that this is a queer read, a queer positive read, the Holy Bible. Let's see if she's right. Now here's a fast fact, a biblical fact, that you can drop at the next cocktail party to make yourself sound like a brilliant theologian. Do not take her advice. As you'll see in just a moment, if you share this fact, and I'm using air quotes here, at a cocktail party, anyone at that cocktail party who has ever heard of Sunday school is going to instantly know that you're not a brilliant theologian if you share this quote-unquote fact. You'll sound like someone pretending to be a brilliant theologian, which is probably why you're so interested in coming off as a brilliant theologian anyway. This is a painting done by Rembrandt of the very first Christian convert. It's called The Baptism of the Ethiopian Eunuch. Dead giveaway number one, that this is not an interesting fact that you should share at a cocktail party to come off as a high-minded theologian, is that the Ethiopian eunuch was decidedly not the first Christian convert. Now, it is possible that he was the first Gentile convert. Um, it's possible that the author of the book of Acts, Luke, was pr trying to put most of the emphasis on Cornelius for whatever reason, because Peter goes to Cornelius and Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. But he was certainly not the first Christian convert. And first of all, isn't it interesting that the very first Christian convert was a person of color? But what was a eunuch? Well, some eunuchs were men that were forcibly castrated, but the vast majority of eunuchs were those who either chose to be castrated or their bodies weren't touched at all. They just had absolutely no interest in heterosexual sex. Therefore, they were safe around the king's harems. So it's definitely true that there were some people who were referred to as eunuchs who were not literal eunuchs, meaning that they had been physically castrated. Why would you ever physically castrate a man? Well, one good reason is actually given in the talk. She says it could be that the, this individual is going to be around the king's harem. He's going to be around uh, uh, royalty, that, that uh, we need to take care of these family lines and make sure that no one is impregnated, uh, that no adultery happens, that no rapes occur, nothing like that. So we just castrate this individual. This, while, it's, while it is true that there are other people out there that just because of a desire for chastity or um, whatever reason, they may just choose not to engage in heterosexual sex. The fact of the matter is that uh, the castration was usually a component when a person is uh, needs, we need to be sure that this individual is not going to do anything around the king's harem or the, king, or the high uh, women in high positions of power. Here's what Sean D. Burke has to say about the early church as it relates to this issue in queering the Ethiopian. When it comes to gender, 
says, the primary question interpreters have asked regarding the Ethiopian eunuch's gender identity is whether he is to be read as a castrated male, although few have explicitly addressed this as an issue of gender. In the early centuries of Christian interpretation, when eunuchs were still a social reality, there appears to have been a consensus among interpreters that the Ethiopian eunuch was a castrated male. Jerome emphasized the eunuch's sterility, and Erator, a 6th century poet, referred to the Ethiopian eunuch's sterile body. Um, similarly, a passage in which he also referred specifically to the Ethiopians, uh, Ethiopian eunuch, Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, described the eunuch in general as being fruitless in nature. In On Baptism by Tertullian, a theologian in Carthage, and in the Latin translation of Irenaeus Against Heresies, two different Latin words are applied to the Ethiopian eunuch, Enucus and Spado. The use of both terms combined with the derivation of spado from a Greek verb meaning to tear or to rend suggests that these interpreters also viewed the eunuch as a castrated male. Some subsequent interpreters shared this reading. Erasmus, for example, used yet another Latin term that emphasized the Ethiopian eunuch's status as a castrated male, everatus, unmanned one. Based on the role of eunuchs in antiquity as guardians of harems, Cornelius Alapide, a Flemish Jesuit scholar, argued that the Ethiopian eunuch must have been castrated male because he served a queen whose inviolability he was charged with guarding. Even the Wikipedia article on the Ethiopian eunuch says, commentators generally suggest that the combination of eunuch together with the title court official indicates a literal eunuch. Now, her reasoning is that the majority of people who were considered eunuchs were people who um, had just decided themselves, and they weren't even physically, literally castrated. They just decided for themselves that they were just going to uh, fun function in a chaste way and not engage. Uh, and perhaps that was because of conflicting sexual desires. Perhaps that was just out of devotion to God. We don't know in any particular case. But in this case, we do know that this was actually an official where it would have made sense for him to be an actually, literally castrated man. But for her case to go through, we have to assume that um, he wasn't a literal castrated individual. He was doing this of his own volition and that it was because he had no interest in heterosexual sex, which meant the reason he didn't have interest in hetero heterosexual sex was because he was queer. And this allows her to conclude this section by um, valiantly declaring, So... I feel totally safe in saying that the very first Christian convert was a queer person of color, and that's in the Bible. It's in the Bible if you make about four, three or four assumptions that you just can't make and is not, in, is not directly or indirectly indicated in the passage. Now, um, a person of color? Sure. And this is an interesting thing that needs to be mentioned, is the constant desire to package um, LGBT issues and civil rights issues uh, that have to do with race as though they're exactly the same thing. And they are simply not exactly the same thing. Even if I was not a Christian, even if I had no inclination like this at all, I would still see them as different sorts of issues. And Philip didn't want to baptize the eunuch because Philip thought that the eunuch was sexually unclean. You remember that part of the story where Philip doesn't want to baptize the Ethiopian eunuch because he's sexually unclean? I don't remember that part of the story either. It's not in the Bible. Now, how did the eunuch convince Philip to baptize them? By knowing their Bible and quoting Scripture at Philip. 
lesson for all of us. So the picture that's been painted is that Philip didn't want to baptize uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. He was too sexually unclean. But the Ethiopian came back at him with Scripture, and that's a lesson for all of us. We need to, we need to combat things with Scripture. Okay, this is the most strange thing ever. Philip approaches the Ethiopian eunuch because he's being led of God, and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading out of the book of Isaiah. Philip approaches him, and the Ethiopian eunuch asks him what it's about. The Ethiopian eunuch asks to be baptized, and Philip baptizes him. That's the story. This business about a, a, an exchange between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch where it, whether he could be baptized or not, and Philip doesn't want to do it, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch comes back with scripture, this never happens. This is not a part of the story. Here's another painting, and this one I'm sure is familiar to all of you. This is The Last Supper, painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And it's everywhere, and it's in every church just about. They're all men. They're the 12 disciples sitting next to Jesus in the middle. But look at the one that's circled. That's John the Baptist. Dead giveaway number two that you will not come off sounding like a high-minded, brilliant theologian is if you refer to John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, as John the Baptist, who was dead by this part of the story. Now, at first when I heard this, I thought maybe it was just a slip of the tongue. Let's keep going. The disciple, it says, that Jesus loved. And Leonardo was part of a huge tradition that always painted John the Baptist as a feminine man. John the Baptist. Think of what we know biblically about the person of John the Baptist, first of all, and ask yourself, is that a man that in any way comes off to you as feminine? Secondly, she shows here that it's not just that she misspoke. She just doesn't know that John, this disciple John, and John the Baptist are two different characters. Now, there actually is an interesting debate among some theologians that perhaps Lazarus is the disciple that Jesus loved, and uh, John was just another one of the disciples. It, John wasn't the disciple that Jesus loved. Obviously, I think Jesus loved all the disciples, but this is a particular uh, relationship that they had. Maybe that was Lazarus. Maybe that was John. Most people think that that was John. But John the Baptist, this is not John the Baptist. Now, we don't really know why that tradition started, but we do know this, that there obviously wasn't anything wrong with being a feminized man in Leonardo's day, just like there shouldn't be anything wrong with it today. Now, did you notice what she just said? This, the summary of this section of her case is to say, um, what this shows is that in Leonardo's day, there certainly wasn't anything wrong with painting a feminized man. She might have said being a feminized man, but, but what we can say is there's certainly nothing wrong on the basis of this painting from painting a man who is to be respected or is uh, an important figure in a feminized way. Okay, but this was supposed to be a queer reading of the Bible, telling me what was true about how people thought of how you could paint some men in Leonardo's day, Leonardo da Vinci's day, tells me nothing about what the Bible means in the Bible day. Do you understand? I mean, this, this to me is not difficult. Now, there are those scripture passages that have been used. They're called the text of terror to beat up on people like me and other queers. Now, at this point, she's going to go off about... Um, passages in the Bible that are not hospitable toward her queer reading or passages that might come up. 
But the way she says it gives you the impression that to this point, we've been looking at all this mountain of biblical data that makes the case that she wants to make. But now, okay, there are those other passages. Let's talk about those. But understand that all we've seen so far is her speculating on speculations on speculations about the Ethiopian eunuch and then telling you that John the Baptist, who's actually John the Disciple, looks a little bit feminine in Leonardo da Vinci's day, proving that people in Leonardo da Vinci's day could paint feminized men. This tells us nothing. Neither one of these things tell us anything about the biblical perspective on these issues. They just don't. And preeminent among them is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, from which we get the term sodomy. But here's the kicker. Sodom and Gomorrah is a queer, positive story. Here's how it goes. God is concerned about the people of Sodom not being hospitable, not being gracious enough to strangers. So God disguises two angels and sends them into the town of Sodom. Now, we don't know why those angels seem so strange to the townspeople. Was it their language? Was it their ethnicity? Was it their religion? There is something so threatening, so queer about them to the townspeople that it set them off. Okay, now notice something. She has just equivocated on the definition of the word queer. She's equivocating between the historical usage, which just means weird, strange, or odd, and the common usage today, which refers to um, issues related to LGBT, which can ambiguously be, I think, uh, used in, in a number of ways with respect to those lifestyles. But what she says here is she says, the people of Sodom saw these strangers, these angels, and there was something so different about them. Maybe it was their religion, maybe it was this or that, but they seemed so strange, so different, so one might say queer is basically what she's doing. Well, okay, them being strange and different in some particular way does not necessarily mean that they were queer in the sense that the LGBTQ crowd means it today. This is just an obvious fallacy of equivocation here. Um, but she, so she says, it, so, so now at this point in her mind, in her mind, the two angels are queer at this point. She's established that. And you'll see that by the next thing she says. And they fail the test. A group of young men set out to threaten to gang rape the angels. Uh, and this is interesting in itself because the threat of rape was used back then and is still used today against LGBTQ people. Do you understand what she just said? Just as LGBTQ people, the angels, uh, there was a threat of, of rape toward them, these kind of threats still happen to LGBTQ people today because these angels are definitely LGBTQ. But step back from that narrative and look at the story. What is your understanding of the sexuality of the people in the town that are wanting to do this? The particular young men who she's talking about who want to do that to these angels. What's their sexuality? And what is your case that the sexuality of the angels is that they're the queer ones? Your only, uh, your only reason for thinking so is, well, they were strange and they were, well, one might say queer. This is the most bizarre thing I think I've seen that I've done a response video to in a long time long time. Now the so-called somewhat hero, Lot, said, no, 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 leave the strangers alone. 
take my two virgin daughters, gang rape them instead. Now I say to you, if this is a story about sexual morality, it is a horrendous, twisted tale. This isn't a story about sexual morality. This is a story about what we do when we are confronted with somebody who's strange or different or challenges our sense of self. And the moral is this, that if you meet someone like that, you should greet them as if they were an angel sent by the divine. It's a queer, positive story. The point of this story is, is not that anybody should be raped by anybody. This is, again, to make the mistake that actually many um, of the new atheists I actually interact with a lot more typically make, which is if something is said in the Bible, and, and by the way, this is not everybody, but enough, that if something is said in the Bible, well then, or if something is described as happening in the Bible, well then that's what God wants in, to happen in the Bible. But we have the words of Satan in the Bible. I mean, not everything that happens in the Bible is what God wants to happen. So... I, you know, th th there are multiple things going wrong, even in this one case. It is certainly true that we should always be conscious of the fact that we're treating people well and that we're treating people as God would want us to treat them. And we could be entertaining angels and all, all that is true. Um, but to make the, to say about this whole story, because of the strange acrobatics that have been done here, to say that this is a story that promotes the um, ideology or, or whatever it is that LGBTQ advocates are talking about, is it? I th I don't know. I think it's just the most bizarre thing I have ever seen. It's not that I've never seen people try to make a case for LGBTQ lifestyles from the Bible. I've seen that. I've just never seen one that is so that that is so straightforwardly wrong and obviously wrong. Not just about the way they're interpreting things, but just about facts. Now, the only other time sex with men and men, between men and men, is mentioned in Hebrew scriptures, is Leviticus. And Leviticus has over 600 do's and don'ts. For example, Leviticus says, don't wear clothing of mixed fibers. So let me tell you, you're all sinners. It also says, don't get a tattoo. I know there are some of you out there. It says, don't eat shellfish, and I don't see people of faith with placards outside of Red Lobster. It says you should kill live animals on an almost daily basis as an appeasement to God. It also says you should stone people who are caught in adultery. Now, there isn't a fundamentalist literalist in the world, in the world, who lives by every do and don't in Leviticus. So why would we take out just that passage about men having sex with men? Makes no sense. Now, I almost want to give this high-minded theologian the benefit of the doubt that if she didn't know who John the Baptist is, maybe she wouldn't know that those things about homosexuality are reaffirmed in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. Except for the fact that I know she's about to go through some of what Paul says. But really, all this stuff about the Old Testament, if you're out there as a listener and you don't know, well, Israel was under a particular covenant with God, and it involved them, uh, yeah, engaging in animal sacrifices and keeping the law code of Moses, all those kinds of things. We are under the new covenant. That is why the New Testament of the Bible is called the New Testament. We're in a new covenant, 
and though the keeping of those laws are are not a part of the keeping of this covenant because Jesus satisfied the law. Jesus was the perfect satis, uh, perfect sacrifice that fulfilled all of the law. Um, we're under a new covenant in Christ, and we we follow His law, sometimes called the royal law or the law of Christ. Um, but the, the the fact is, this is something that's affirmed in the New Testament as well by Paul, in more than one place. So she knows that this is true, which means this entire piece she's bringing up right here is completely irrelevant except for me to use to explain to you why Old Testament laws about things are still helpful and important and relevant for Christians today. And one of the reasons is it tells us, it gives us um, a principle about how God views these things. Yeah, we don't stone people for adultery, but it shows you how seriously God takes adultery. We don't stone people for particular other sins that what it does is shows us how serious those things are. And so what I would encourage uh, someone listening to that is to a, to a person who's making this sort of a case is just to point them out. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christianity is. And I don't mean that in the sense that, well, you're just one denomination among many, but Braxton, the reality is you're just speaking from your own faith tradition. No, no, I'm sorry. This is Christianity is that we are under a new covenant. And so we, we don't, we don't follow the law of Moses in that way, the way that the Old Testament saints did the Jews in the Old Testament, but she knows that because she covers Paul. So that means that everything that we're seeing right here is, is completely irrelevant and not necessary to, uh, it, it, it falls completely apart. Once you understand why Christians follow what they do today, this is reaffirmed in the new Testament. We don't follow the old law. And I think she knows that because she's going to move on in just a moment to talk about Paul, but the issues related to homosexuality are reaffirmed in the new Testament by Paul. So let's go on to see what she has to say about that. Now, uh, Paul also says some negative things about sex between men, but Paul also said, don't get married. Not too many Christians or anybody else upholds that. Paul also said that if you're a slave, don't fight for your freedom. Stay a slave. A passage that was used for hundreds of years to justify slavery. Why did Paul say such strange things? Strange things? Because in his day, they were rounding up Christians. They were killing them. They were torturing them. Paul wrote from prison. So he was saying essentially to Christians, you're going to die soon. You're going to meet your maker. So don't change what you're doing at this point. Keep on doing what you're doing. Focus on the divine. Now, real quick, before I forget it, this issue about a slave. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you can, he says, are you a slave? Well, don't let it trouble you. But he says, if you can get your freedom, then get it. Uh, so this, but the notion that she's, the reason she brings that up is she's trying to present this picture that has truth in it, that um, Paul either thought the Christians were going to be killed soon or that Christ was going to return. And so as a result, he said, just, just kind of keep doing what you're doing right now. Like don't change your status in some major way. That's the point she wants to make. And she expands that to don't get married and don't, uh, and, and, and it's not really with same sex relationships. It's not really that Paul has any kind of problem with homosexuality. Um, instead, what it really is, is that he just wants everyone to stay like they are. That's why they're not supposed to get married either. It's not that they're not supposed to be queer. It's just, that they're not supposed to change their status in any major way. Let's just stick with what we got because it's all going to be over soon. Let's just push through. Well, here's the thing. Paul may have had that in mind when he comes to first Corinthians seven and talks about being um, married and, uh, and if, if you can not to be married and, but, but if you're going to burn the flesh, well, you know, go on and marry. And he could have been talking about that with slaves and had that in mind, although he does say that if you can be free, be free. 
Um, so th- there may be something about that, but he doesn't command people not to get married. He doesn't command people not to get married. He doesn't command people um, uh, to stay as slaves if they can get free. In fact, he says, go ahead and get free if you can. So the, the notion here isn't that all of a sudden, okay, well, then that means it's okay for me uh, to be engaged in homosexual activity because Paul wouldn't have had a problem with it. All they were trying to do is just keep people in, in these spots where they were. First of all, read Romans chapter one, read first Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11, and ask yourself if it looks like that's all Paul's saying, or if Paul is trying to communicate that same sex activity is sinful in the eyes of God. It seems very clear. That's what he's trying to communicate. Secondly, in order for her point to get off the ground, she would have to, she would still be engaging uh, she would have to say something like that we were commanded not to get married, but we do it anyway because we knew that Paul was wrong and and all this. That, that's not how it happens. You're not commanded to marry. You don't have to marry. So so this whole thing um, is is so bizarre as a way of trying to sidestep around Paul. But it gets even better because listen to what she says next. Paul also said and wrote some of the most beautiful, binary-smashing, queer, positive words ever written. He said, in Christ there is no male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not much of a leap to say queer nor straight, is it? Okay, now I know that the most obvious thing that we want to say about this is Yeah, she says, Paul wrote some of the most beautiful um, uh, queer prose that we've ever seen. If you add those at the end of the sentence, like she just did, we can imagine him saying queer or straight, right? Secondly, we need to point out here that that when, when she when she quoted the passage and she didn't read it, she quoted it. She quoted it wrong. She said, um, slave nor free. She, that's true. Jew nor Greek. That's true. But it says man, male and female, not male nor female. And that has important implications if you go a couple layers deeper in this discussion. But the fact is um, th- this she has to add to the verse in order to get Paul to say what she wants him to say. I mean, she literally adds to the verse. Now, at this point in the story, she goes on to talk about some personal interactions she's had and as serving as a minister and, and, and uh, getting people married who, who were lesbian or all these kind of things. And she talks a little bit about how um, one story of one, I think, um, trans person that made a stained glass window for their church. And she had reflected, we're probably the only church in the world that has a stained glass window like this uh, of a trans person. And uh, then she stops herself and says this. Now. Somebody put their hand up and yelled from the back row saying, what about Joan of Arc? What about Joan of Arc? At least a cross-dresser, if not a trans person. So you see, my friends, queers have been there from the get-go. So at the end of the talk, one more point we just got to throw in there. What about Joan of Arc? At least a cross-dresser, also probably trans. Okay, another assumption. So, what was the case that she made here for us? The Ethiopian eunuch might not have been a literal eunuch, and if he wasn't a literal eunuch, he might have just abstained from sex and wasn't heterosexual. And if all that is true, um, the first Christian convert ever, except that he wasn't, was queer. We also learned that in Leonardo da Vinci's day, it was popular to point to paint John the Baptist in a feminine way, despite that she really meant a different John and not John the Baptist. And despite that was uh, what was popular to do in 
um, paintings in Da Vinci's day has absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible says. Paul wasn't really against same-sex activity. In fact, he wrote beautiful queer literature, if you add the phrase, and we can imagine he might have said queer nor straight at the end of it. Folks, when this is being promoted to unsuspecting lay audience members as the academically rigorous position, it truly and obviously demonstrates a complete lack of care for the Bible or Christianity in general. Rather, it's a demand to see one's own preferences coming out of the Bible, despite what the Bible actually says. Listen, if you don't want to believe the biblical message, you don't have to believe the biblical message, but at least don't butcher it like we've seen here.